This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, in Emily St. John Mandel's new novel, Sea of Tranquility, we meet Olive Llewellyn, the best-selling author of a pandemic novel on book tour in the year 2203. People who come to Olive's events sometimes say awful things. In this conversation... Mandel explains how she pulled many of those expressions from her own tours. Mandel drew acclaim in 2014 with the publication of her novel Station Eleven, which tells the story of life during and after an apocalyptic flu pandemic. It was nominated for the National Book Award and won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. For obvious reasons, At the beginning of 2020, Station Eleven was suddenly ringing bells again. The HBO Max cable series based on the book rang even more bells when it premiered in late 2021. Out of that whirlwind, Mandel came to Seattle recently to talk about her writing process, her writing choices, time travel, pandemics, real and literary anomalies, and the ride she's been on. She was interviewed by Seattle-based writer and journalist Kristen Miaris-Young, author of the novel Subduction and editor of Seismic, a Washington State Book Award finalist. The Seattle Public Library presented this event, originally scheduled for March 2020, on April 18, 2022. And Mandel took thoughtful, not awful, questions from the audience. So I'm only two years late. Um, <laughs> I was planning on being here in March 2020, but I'm so glad we could do this. And thank you so much for coming. It's really moving and wonderful to be back in rooms with people again after, after two years on Zoom. So we really do welcome your questions tonight. Uh, I have spent some many happy hours with her work, but I know that your curiosities may eclipse my own. So please do as you uh, think of them, write some things down, pass them forward to Stesha, and uh, I'll be sure to weave your questions in uh, when I can. But we're going to open with a reading uh, from Sea of Tranquility. Okay, so this is a book that moves through a pretty broad span of time. We start on Vancouver Island in 1912 and then jump forward through the centuries to a moon colony in the year 2400. And I'm going to read just for a couple of minutes from the far future section. No star burns forever. You can say it's the end of the world and mean it, but what gets lost in that kind of careless usage is that the world will eventually literally end. Not civilization, whatever that is, but the actual planet which is not to say that those smaller endings aren't annihilating. A year before I began my training at the Time Institute, I went to a dinner party at my friend Ephraim's place. He was just back from a vacation on Earth, and he had a story about going on a walk in a cemetery with his daughter, Mei Ying, who was four at the time. Ephraim was an arborist. He liked to go to old cemeteries to look at the trees. But then they found the grave of another four-year-old girl, Ephraim told me, and he just wanted to leave after that. He was used to graveyards. He sought them out. He'd always said that he didn't find them depressing, just peaceful. But that one grave just got to him. He looked at it and was unbearably sad. Also, it was the worst kind of earth summer day, impossibly humid, and he felt like he couldn't get enough air. The drone of the cicadas was oppressive. Sweat ran down his back. He told his daughter it was time to go, but she lingered by the gravestone for a moment. If her parents loved her, Mei Ying said, it would have felt like the end of the world. 
It was such an eerily astute observation, Ephraim told me, that he stood there staring at her and found himself thinking, where did you come from? They got out of the cemetery with difficulty. She had to stop and inspect every goddamn flower and pine cone, he said, and they never went back. Those are the worlds that end in our day-to-day lives, these stopped children, these annihilating losses. But at the end of Earth, there will be actual, literal annihilation, hence the colonies. The first colony on the moon was intended as a prototype, a practice run for establishing a presence in other solar systems in the coming centuries. Because we'll have to, the president of China said at the press conference where construction on the first colony was announced. Eventually, whether we want to or not, unless we want all of human history and achievement to get sucked into a supernova a few million years down the line. I watched footage of that press conference in my sister Zoe's office 300 years after the fact. The president behind the lectern with her officials arrayed around her, a crowd of reporters below the stage. One of them raised his hand. Are we sure it's going to be a supernova? I read that section it's really kind of bleak but, <laughs> but I like it I don't know it's um it's based on a cemetery that's really near my house in Brooklyn where I had that moment with my daughter who was four at the time and it just it just stayed with me well cemeteries are one of the best ways to get to know a society what yeah. they value what they consider right. to be the lasting legacy yeah yeah I'll buy that and also they're beautiful I mean the one near my house is from I think it was established around the 1850s give or take and they were, cemeteries were built in those days kind of as places where people would gather, not just as a place to put the dead. And so there was a real eye toward landscaping and beauty and a lot of old trees. So, yeah, I think that's why I like that section, but I should change it up for, the, for Portland. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent, you know, a fair amount of time reading through your work and I wanted to talk about that the time travel, I mean, books are a form of time travel, right? We yeah, transmit, definitely. you know, embodied emotional and intellectual experiences across breaks in space and time, but you have actual time travel. Yeah, that was, I feel like that was really a pandemic thing where, I don't know, there was something about the awfulness of early 2020 when I started really working on that book in earnest. I've always loved time travel stories. One of my favorite movies is Looper by Ryan Johnson. And, you know, I I love reading time travel fiction. It's just always kind of spoken to me. I think I had this fear that if I wrote a time travel novel, maybe I wouldn't be serious, like taken seriously anymore. Like I might lose my serious literary novelist credentials or something. Um, but A, that's dumb. And <laughs> those can't be yeah, revoked. Those can't be revoked. <laughs> no. Right. And uh, and B, who cares? And C, the pandemic was so awful that I remember just having this feeling, which for context, I spent the pandemic in New York City. So March 2020 was hell. Um, I just felt like, you know what? Everything's terrible. I'm just gonna write whatever I want. So I think that's what drove me from sort of figurative time travel, which you're right, a novel is, to actually having a guy step into a time machine and go to 1912. But you seem less interested in the mechanisms of that travel than what it might make possible for people psychologically and socially. And I wondered why you made that choice. I feel like if you're writing sci-fi, that's a choice that you have to make pretty early on in thinking about your project. And I don't know that there's a right or a wrong way to approach it. You know, this sort of the counterexample to the way I do it is, um, I would say, Shishin Liu, uh, The Three-Body Problem, The Dark Forest, all those short stories. He goes deep into the technology in a way that reads to me, and I'm not a physicist, but it reads very plausibly to me. He pulls it off on the page. It's very detailed. It's really smart. It's really cool. I've kind of always taken the opposite approach, where what I was thinking about with this book was... I don't know that I really care how the time machine works, you know, for the same reason that I don't really feel the need to go into the details of how a car works if I'm writing fiction set in the present day, because it's just transport, you know, and I'm really interested in the characters. So that's, that's the side of the divide that I fall on. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I feel like every sci-fi writer has to make that choice. Well, it cleared the way for a lot of intersecting emotions. And, you know, uh, Wired Magazine recently noted 
Speculative fiction often uses the future to decode the present. Here, Mandel folds the past into the mix as well, creating a speculative universe where each plotline's ending doubles as a trapdoor back to another plotline's middle. And that is true. It's extraordinarily intricate. So I wanted to ask you how you managed to hold that structure in your mind. Um, somebody else had already done it, which made, <laughs> which made it much, much easier. Um, this will not come as a surprise to anybody who's read both books, but I feel like the structure of Sea of Tranquility is very much an homage to Cloud Atlas, the David Mitchell novel, which is one of my very favorite novels. And I have always admired the symmetry and order of the Cloud Atlas structure, where you know, my previous novels, they were all nonlinear. We moved all over the place in time through multiple points of view. The structure of those books, in particular, Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel, it was kind of intuitive. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the structure was because there wasn't really a path. It was more, it was more in the spirit of, I think this chapter makes sense after that chapter and this and then this and then that. But Cloud Atlas has this incredible structure where he starts, David Mitchell starts way back. It's like the 1650s or something. And if every letter is a period in time moving forward into the far future, you could map that book as something like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And I just love that. I tried to do that structure for the Glass Hotel. It absolutely did not work. The book was a disaster. Uh, I had to restructure it three times to figure out how to pull it off. But I felt like it could work with this, maybe in part because of the time travel element. It was easier than it was with the Glass Hotel to hold that structure while sustaining a certain narrative momentum. I couldn't completely do it. You know, the, uh, the anomaly chapter at the end of Sea of Tranquility is also anomalous to the structure. You know, we break out of that symmetry because I couldn't quite pull it up. <laughs> but yeah, having, having that roadmap was was kind of invaluable just in pulling the book together. And that was a big part of why this book was much faster than other books I've written. Well, and you also revisited some of the characters from the Glass Hotel. And I was curious about that, how if they, if they haunted you after publication, why did you yeah. go back to them? Um, I like doing that. You know, maybe there's some desire on my part for order in the universe. You know, I just... There's something, even though all of my books stand alone and you could read them in any order, I do like the idea of somehow pulling them together, having these connections between them. So sometimes it's just that I fall in love with particular characters. Like when I wrote Station Eleven, I felt really attached to Miranda and Leon. So I wanted to bring them back for the Glass Hotel and see more of their stories and, and different aspects of their lives. With Sea of Tranquility, I, you know, once I realized it was going to be a time travel novel, I was thinking through, well, what will those points in time be? There's a point in time that I'm completely obsessed with, and that's February 2020, specifically in New York City, but I would assume it was not very different here, where, I don't know, I cannot really account for how we behave that month. Like, I look back at that, and look, we're all smart people. Like we can read newspapers and understand news reports, but it was like there was this kind of mass failure of imagination that fascinates me. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we knew what was coming. We could see these, the story emerging of this horrible new virus in China and then Italy and then elsewhere. In New York City, we have three international airports. Like Obviously, it was pouring into the city every single day and like increasing exponentially by the hour. And we were so breezy about it that month, which is a kind of like deflective mechanism. We were like, oh, yeah, that new virus is definitely here. And then we would drop our kids off at school, get into a crowded subway, go to choir practice in an unventilated basement, meet our friends for drinks at a bar, like do all these things that made no sense. And it was like... Even though we knew intellectually what was coming, we didn't believe it would happen to us. And I'm fascinated by that time. So once I realized that I wanted to revisit that time, I also realized I have all these characters kind of waiting in the wings from the Glass Hotel, which I'd just written. And, you know, they're very plausibly in New York City in 2020. So I'm just going to reel them in. (laughs) You know, um, 
I guess you could say there's a slight element of laziness and that it's definitely easier to bring in characters you've already created than create them from scratch. On the other hand, I really value velocity as a writer, which means that I never spend as much time with characters as I'd like to because it has to keep moving. I really want the book to move fast. So sometimes it's a pleasure to bring them back and just see more of their lives. So, you know, with The Glass Hotel, I really liked that character, Morella, Vincent's best friend. We don't spend much time with her because there just isn't the time to hang out with secondary characters too much. But it was a pleasure to bring her back for Sea of Tranquility, just get more of her. I am still haunted by that scene from The Glass Hotel uh, where she's at the bar sitting through, you know, the peanuts and the cruelty and the capacity for cruelty between past friends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that, I mean, it does, the charge does carry over from book to book. Right. And her longing perhaps for that opportunity that she had missed to connect. And and just kind of the way memories change in retrospect where... You know, for anybody who hasn't read the book, in the Glass Hotel, there's a scene where Morella comes into the bar where her friend Vincent is the bartender, and Morella pretends not to know Vincent, kind of as revenge for something Vincent's husband did. But then as, she's re- as she revisits that moment, she's like, wait, maybe she really didn't know and wishes she could go back and change it. Well, so, you know, uh, for those of us who wish we could go back and, and change certain activities from prior in the pandemic, I have a couple of quotes that I just love from The Sea of Tranquility. You wrote, pandemics don't approach like wars with the distant sound of artillery growing louder every day and flashes of bombs on the horizon. They arrive in retrospect, essentially. It's disorienting. The pandemic is far away, and then it's all around you with seemingly no intermediate step. But you talked about how in conceiving a post-technological world for Station Eleven, that the pandemic aspect was rather incidental, um, but that it taught you something that there's no binary, right? There's yeah, no, right. there's no you're in or you're out of the pandemic. Yeah, that was something I got wrong. Yeah. That's like with Station Eleven, I did a ton of research into the history of pandemics, even though I knew the Station Eleven pandemic was never particularly plausible, but I still kind of wanted to know what I was taking liberties with before I, as I wrote that. And I think that I had thought of being in a pandemic as a binary state, as in you're either in or you're out, but it's not. I mean, what was February, 2020 and where are we now? You know, this feeling of being half in, half out, it's getting better, except we're always one variant away from disaster. And it's just, it makes it really hard to do risk assessments, I would say. It does. It's like, I'm on a, I'm on a day-by-day basis here. I don't know about y'all. Um, but, you know, there's this disturbance there, this, this unease from these changing contexts. Mm-hmm. And um, so Station 11 was published in 2014, as most of you know. Um, so six years later, right, you're caught in the middle of a pandemic yeah. that people had accused you of predicting or perhaps enacting with your yeah, imagination, yeah. which must have been Guys, insane. it wasn't my fault. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is on the record, please. Yeah. <laughs> But I was curious about what kind of the animating, how your animating questions changed in those six years or, you know, almost decade between probably the beginning of the right. writing station 11. You mean around like how I would write about pandemics? Yeah. Or, um, I'll have to think about that. I guess, well, you know what? Yeah, the station 11 pandemic it really was incidental. It could just as easily have been a nuclear war. The project was to write about a post-technological society. But to get to your post-technological world, you've got to end the world somehow. It's kind of, I realize I sound like a psychopath when I say that, but um, you know, I just had to wipe out civilization really effectively and a pandemic seemed like the way to go. So that was what I chose. Um, I didn't mean to become the pandemic novelist, but here we are, <laughs> my second pandemic book. I think part of the of Sea of Tranquility was just kind of leaning into that in a mm-hmm. way where you know there was that intervening book I published The Glass Hotel, which came out March 2020. Um, that was a really, really weird book to publish a novel. I know you had a book out around the same time. Um, yeah, and you know, all anybody wanted to talk about was the pandemic, which I resisted for about a week. And then I realized <laughs> we all need to talk about the pandemic. Yeah. Um, it's not even like it was the elephant in the room. It's like it was the room. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was unavoidable. So, yeah, you know, there, there is a lot in Sea of Tranquility about just grappling with that weirdness of having written a pandemic novel and then finding yourself in an actual pandemic. And 
that strangeness where people expect you to be an expert in pandemics. And, you know, I, I never was an epidemiologist. I've always tried to be clear about that. Um, for those of you who might be wondering, the, the very best Substack is from your local epidemiologist. I highly recommend okay, PDX. Look for that. Yeah, it's really good. Um, but you've expressed admiration for the adaptation of Station Eleven by HBO I Max. Love that show. I, I had nothing to do with it, so I, I feel like I can say that without showing off. But yeah, the uh, the show is it's just it's just so good. <laughs> I'm so impressed. Um, those performances, um, Himesh Patel is. Jeevan Chowdhury, I think he's just remarkable. Um, Danielle Deadweiler as Miranda, but like they're all amazing. I, yeah, I'm so impressed. How have you um, found the public and critical reception of the series? Um, it's really interesting. You know, I'm friends with Patrick Somerville, a showrunner. And so we've had a lot of conversations about this. There's this thing that people, I haven't seen it as much lately, but when the show first came out that People would default to on Twitter, which is like, which is better, the book or the show? And like, that's tedious <laughs> and, and kind of unnecessary. <laughs> but, uh, I guess it's just a quibble on my part. Um, and, you know, you can find different camps, like passionately argue either side. But we're united. You know, Patrick and I, like we, we both created Station Elevens. Um, the critical reception has mostly been great. Some people are really upset that the show is different from the book. And I understand that as a reader. I feel like I've had moments with adaptations where I haven't, uh, I haven't liked how different it was. Something that's become clear to me over time, though, especially having worked a little bit in television, is that adaptations are different because they have to be, you know, because different mediums have completely different dramatic requirements. And an interesting book, if you mapped it directly onto the screen, could be a boring TV show. And doesn't work so well the other way either. You know, it's just, those are different art forms that do very different things. So for myself, I felt like it was always going to be completely different. And I was always okay with that. But, but he somehow maintained the spirit of the show. Like there's, there's a lot of joy in it. And I think that was hard to pull off. Well, now that you're, um, I think we can talk about this. You're involved in the adaptation of The Glass Hotel yeah, and I, Sea of Tranquility. So what's that like? It's so much fun. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of my love of the, of the adaptation process comes back to the way I write books, which is I don't write from an outline. And what that means is that, you know, I'm just kind of winging it with the first draft. Just I'll just start writing and see where that takes me. And then you make different choices and the path starts to narrow toward this increasingly inevitable ending. But I always have the sense that I could have started in exactly the same place and written 10 different books. So for me, there's almost an element, it sounds pretentious, but like an element of play about it where it's like I get to go back and play with the story and try out a completely different way of telling the story. And that's just really fun. Like it's, it's really fun doing that with your friends. <laughs> so yeah, I, I've loved working on the adaptations. Did it help you hone your elevator pitch for CA Tranquility? No, I, was like, still, do you have that down now? I still do not have an elevator pitch for CA <laughs> Tranquility. <laughs> yeah, with... Um, with Station Eleven, the elevator pitch was so easy. It was like, well, it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. Like, done. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> but, like, but yeah, see tranquility. I just kind of flail all over the place, talking about time travelers and Vancouver Island in 1912. But, yeah, if you come up with an elevator pitch, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> but I haven't. No. It's united by a detective who moves through space and time uh, seeking resolution toward an anomaly. And that anomaly becomes very interesting in the context of um, the simulation hypothesis, which I'm going to kick that one back to you to talk about <laughs> what that is and how it operates in the context of Sea of Tranquility. Sure, that was, that was good, by the way. <laughs> okay, um, by the way, I have a cold. Uh, I have tested negative for COVID the last four days in a row. So like, I'm not actually patient zero, but I am coughing. <laughs> Um, right. The simulation hypothesis. Uh, it's what it sounds like. It's the idea that possibly all of this is a simulation. I came across it years ago, just one of those internet rabbit hole things that you find yourself reading at 1am. And something I love about it is that you can find very smart people to passionately argue either side of that argument. It's, it's kind of fun. 
For me, the simulation hypothesis was a way to solve the time travel paradox or the time travel problem, which is you can, you just get into a loop really easily with time travel narratives. So if I step out that door and into a time machine that takes me to Denver in 1910, then was I not always going to step out the door into the time machine that takes me to 1910 and back to here and back to 1910 and back to here? And then once you're caught in that loop, that really wreaks havoc on, well, on free will and on cause and effect and on narrative momentum. And it just becomes disastrous very easily, you know, for, for the story. So I thought, well, maybe a way to solve that would be to put this whole other layer of weirdness on top. And so that's why in one of the 2401 sections in the, in the far future, there's um, it was a character who's almost an avatar for the skeptical reader or maybe even the skeptical writer in my case. Um, and he has this speech to the effect of, we don't understand why time travel works as well as it does. We don't understand why it doesn't always create a loop or a paradox or why human history isn't completely altered every time we go back. We're not sure how the timeline seems to repair itself. We think the fact that it works at all might be evidence that we're looking at a simulation. So it was a way to solve that problem for myself and also fun to write about. That moment was brilliant coming across in the, in the text. Like, oh, um, and f- for those of you who may not have encountered this concept before, you know, it really does go back to the fourth century uh, before Common Era, uh, the Platonic uh, cave flickerings. Um, there's Zhuangzi uh, and this uh, man dreams of a butterfly, but when he awakes, he's not sure if he may be a butterfly dreaming as a man. Oh, I love that. I hadn't heard that. And it's that loop, right? right? But I heard you said something very curious the other day during one of your interviews about your refusal to resolve time loops as a way of ducking the uh, constraints of artifice within a novel. And so I was really curious right. about how, how you find that, that flickering between artifice and then hewing to the plausible fictions. Yeah, it is always a tension because, of course, there is a lot of artifice in a novel. Um, I don't know about you, but my life does not feel like a well-plotted narrative arc. You know, like, there's, a degree of, um, there's a degree of complications in there. Um, so there is something inherently false or kind of artificial about the way novels are structured, you know, with a climax and then resolution. And, and yeah, there is always a tension there for me because as a reader, it kind of bugs me when novels are like perfectly wrapped up because it feels too false. But if there, but if there isn't that overarching sense of a plot that it's not false enough, it's boring and too much like real life. So yeah, that, that's something that I'm always grappling with, whether it's time travel or the question of whether Jeevan should ever meet up with the traveling symphony. You know, it's like, it's always a thing that, that has to be dealt with in every book I write. Well, so we're getting some really great questions from the audience. And one of them is something that I also had a curiosity about. So there's these series of chapters in the Glass Hotel, the counter life, right? And there is things that are happening in the counter life that are um, in, in the mind of the uh, architect of this Ponzi scheme. Um, and Jonathan Alkaitis. Um, so in Sea of Tranquility, his character recurs, but there appears to have been some alteration to yeah. which of the narratives is true. Right. And Why, see, the reader wants to know. Because it was, <laughs> that's a fair question. Thank you for asking. Um, because it was fun. <laughs> it's, really the, it's really the actual honest answer. It was fun to think about, yeah, just this idea, well, what if Sea of Tranquility takes place in the counter life? Mm. So the Glass Hotel is a world where Alcatus is sentenced to, it's ridiculous, it's like 170 years in prison or something. Um, and he, but he has dreams of this parallel life where maybe he fled to Dubai, which has no extradition treaty with the US. And then in Sea of Tranquility, it's the opposite. He actually does flee to Dubai. So yeah, it was just kind of fun to play with that idea. But in the TV adaptation, it's, it's all the same world because that would just get too crazy. Is, is it odd that I was glad for him? Um, is, I, I found, no, I found myself questioning that considering right. the suicides that he yeah. caused. Yeah. I was still somewhat gladdened by his escape. I, I find that flattering because it suggests that I did a half-decent job with character development. <laughs> that you cared about him. So I, 
I, you know, I don't, I think that it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Like check your morality later. (laughs) Uh, Great question from Karen. Um, The subject of colonialism is prominently featured throughout the sea of tranquility in Canada, India, and the moon. Can you talk about how you came to the decision to talk about colonialism? Did you know that you wanted to write about it when you started the novel or did you come to it while you were writing and was your decision affected by recent world events? Um, my decision was not affected by recent world events, but, you know, my mom has done a lot of genealogical research and something we've always known about the family is that one of my 29th great grandfathers was William the Conqueror. And like, if you have somebody like that in your family tree, then you can just find everybody because those are people whose lives are more likely to be recorded. So what I know about my family is that when they weren't invading England, they were going off to have like horrible adventures in the Raj or like Canada or Australia. Like there, there are just a lot of countries that my ancestors colonized. And once I realized that it would be a time travel novel and I was thinking through the time periods, I was interested in uh, basing a character on one of my great-grandfathers. His name was Newell St. Andrew St. John. It's one of the most epically British names in the history of names. <laughs> um, back then, I guess, actually, it would have been St. John, not St. John, but same thing. Um, you know, he came to Canada around 1908 or so as a remittance man. Um, what I found myself thinking about, this goes back to the simulation hypothesis. Okay, so... If a simulation means basically a false story, like you're living inside this structure, is there some parallel there to colonialism? And what I mean by that is it seems to me that part of the tragedy of colonialism has to do with false narratives. Where in Canada, where I'm from, it was the narrative of the empty land. This idea that here was a vast land just there for the taking, that was never true. There were people there, and that was what made it a catastrophe and genocidal and just calamitous. But, you know, if you're operating in the service of a false narrative, like by colonizing Canada, for example, is that similar in some way to living in a simulation And I felt like it kind of is. There's something in there about false structures and false narratives and laboring in the service of a false idea that seemed to me to be kind of an interesting parallel. So that was what I found myself thinking about with those sections. I was so, I I don't know if you've ever had uh, cause to visit uh, the Cahokia Mounds in uh, Illinois. So there are these um, Mesoamerican pyramids made out of packed earth that were uh, hosting a city that was larger than Paris in the 12th century. Wow. And it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site that I never learned about until I was in my mid-30s. There are people, um, their bones laid out on a two fish made out of 16,000 pierced beads. Um, Just incredible scale of building and society completely countermands, you know, the, the scattered bands theory right. that we were taught. And that, as you say, the laboring under that false narrative, it does allow for such blindness and atrocities. Um, it's one of the things, the gifts of literature, I think, is that you can kind of ask people to re-examine right. their narratives. But to do that, sometimes you, you invoke the self, right? So one of our uh, audience members here is asked... Um, So I listened to a few interviews that you gave in 2020 very recently and noticed that in Sea of Tranquility, several quotes from Olive are things you've said nearly verbatim. What made you choose to put yourself so directly in the story? Um, That was the starting point. So two or three months before the pandemic, I'd started just kind of playing around with these little autofiction segments, which autofiction, that's autobiographical fiction, which is to say fiction that's slightly more obviously based on the author's life than regular fiction, because you always put yourself into it when you're developing characters and thinking through conversations and storylines. And the reason for doing that was, I, you know, I, I love the life that I live. Like, I, I think it's incredible to be able to do this work. At the same time, people have said such interesting things to me on tour. (laughs) um, The word interesting is doing some really heavy lefty in that (laughs) sentence, by the way, if that wasn't clear. Um, 
So I had just had all of these surreal, bizarre interactions on the road, and I wanted to write about it. I wasn't sure if I'd ever do anything with it. You know, sometimes I'll start writing something like that, that I think is going to be in a new novel, but after three rounds of revision, that original thing is gone and I've moved on to something else. But in this case, you know, as I was thinking through what this time travel narrative was going to be when the pandemic hit and I started really working on the book in earnest, I thought, well, maybe it'd be interesting to just filter those experiences through a sci-fi lens and have Mm. it be a book tour in the year 2300. So certainly the most optimistic aspect of the novel. Yeah. But publishers <laughs> still have funding for book tours in the year 2300. From the moon. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you're reading those sections, um, all of those interactions are autobiographical. Those are things that people actually said out loud to me on the road. Like, yeah. Do you write them down immediately or do they just kind of hang out until you can't stand? I'll just but feel like <laughs> stewing in my hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, they, they, they stay with me in a way that I don't like, and I wish I could let them go more easily, but, but they're really messed up. So maybe I shouldn't expect that of myself. <laughs> I don't know. Do you find that writing them even through a fictional lens does allow for release, or is it just kind of transmutated into something else? A little of both, I think. Um, you know, there's definitely that thing in fiction where when you think of the perfect comeback, like the fictional character says it, where... Whereas like, like in real life, when a woman in Texas said to me, you must have a very kind husband to take care of your daughter while you do this, which I just want to be clear, it's his daughter too. And I was on a business trip to support my family. Um, in the moment, I just had no words and just like blinked at her. But, um, you know, in, in the fictional version, Olive has some kind of devastating comeback. <laughs> so, you know, that's, a, that's a shallow pleasure of writing fiction. It's what I enjoy. Well, I definitely, as a, as a fellow parent, I really, um, I really resonated with those sections of trying to allocate the day during, between pandemic, working, mm-hmm. homeschooling, um, and just the, God, the constant 2020 was just, <laughs> oh my God. I feel like all the parents of young kids in 2020 have PTSD for trying to make that work. Um, I almost yeah. all, uh, I really appreciate this about you that you always take care to acknowledge your nanny. Yeah. I mean, if the acknowledgements of a book is a list of people without whom the book would not have been possible, then yeah, for both Sea of Tranquility and the Glass Hotel, uh, without my daughter's nanny, that I would still be writing Sea of Tranquility, which has sort of been a much harder, much longer project. So um, one of my very favorite uh, short story writers uh, locally, Kirsten uh, Sundberg-Lundstrom, she gave me a question that I would like to ask. Sure. Um, so um, Sea of Tranquility, right, shows its author on a book tour, and then Station Eleven, you know, draws upon an old Star Trek quote, survival is insufficient as a mission statement for a post-apocalyptic troop, right? Um, And of course, we know that art has survived worse eras than this one. Um, But what do we ask of it? And so this is the question from from Lundstrom. She writes, I just taught Robert Adams civilizing criticism, and he asks of any piece of art, did it reveal form, that is, beauty? Was it fresh? Did it make old truth new? Was it a work of significant scope? Did it reconcile important elements that had before seemed irreconcilable? So Station Eleven makes a case for art as essential to human existence because we do often answer yes to those questions, both as art makers and as recipients of that art. She's curious then, what questions do you think that we should be asking of art and considering its value during these times? It's a great question. I feel like I need to think about it, but... Off the top of my head, I don't know if we should have a set criteria because, you know, I was about to say these are hard times, but all times are hard times. You know, human suffering definitely doesn't stop when a pandemic does. Maybe for one person, something being beautiful is enough. Like that lifts you out of your day and gives you some feeling of grace, and like something in your soul that wasn't there before. Maybe for something else, for somebody else, the beauty is irrelevant and it has to say something really incisive and sharp about the world we live in. And for a third person, maybe it does bring two things together that they hadn't thought of before and that connection is meaningful. It, it kind of 
it kind of makes me think of this, uh, this line I like from the writer and critic Edmund Wilson, where he said, no two people ever read the same book. And what he meant was that readers have a relationship with a book that's kind of specific to them. And it might be interesting to think of that in terms of other art forms too, where, yeah, like one person's criteria for what is meaningful and what moves them and what matters might be quite different from somebody else's. So I think I would hesitate to have a list like that, honestly. And to be, I like the idea that to be transported on an individual basis, even if that joy is um, not being shared precisely among various individuals, but that in itself, that quiet experience is a rebellion. Yeah, right, right. I like that. Um, One of the questions, speaking of different art forms, I read that you studied modern dance. Does that influence any of your writings? Maybe the passion of the traveling symphony. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, it might. Yeah, with the traveling symphony, I, I really like writing about group dynamics. And there, what, there is something about the experience of having been in a couple of dance companies when I was much younger, where, you know, just the group of talented and candidly somewhat neurotic people just sort of like clashing against each other. <laughs> and the way, like, on the one hand, there's a profundity to feeling like you're dedicating yourself to your art, and you're taking your art to the highest possible level. And on the other hand, you're like super irritated that that person next to you keeps clearing her throat. You know, it's just like, yeah, yeah just like the pettiness of people. Oh, yeah. The way it clashes against, you know, our sort of ideals as artists. I love writing about that. And I think that does come from having been in dance companies. Yeah, certainly you really dialed in on the, um, the ecosystem. Like of- hell is other people. You just gotta, <laughs> yeah, you got to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Um, Carissa asks, in a lot of ways, Sea of Tranquility feels like a novel where no one has learned their lessons. The future is still full of misogyny. Humanity didn't learn enough from the COVID um, pandemic to prevent the novel's main pandemic. And even Gaspari doesn't really learn his lesson in a lot of ways. Do you feel that we as a civilization, like the characters in the book, are bound to keep repeating the same mistakes? Or is there more room for hope than that? Um, kind of both. I mean... You know, I think of all the science fiction or speculative fiction that I've read, the book that probably stays with me the the most vividly is A Canticle for Leibowitz, which was published in 1960 by um, Walter Miller. And that's a book that begins thousands of years after a nuclear holocaust where like civilization is wiped out and it's just remnants piecing it together. And then it jumps forward and it's been a while, but I want to say like thousand year intervals until we're back at the brink of nuclear war. And I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> these people learn nothing. I, you know, I, I, am, I am susceptible to that. At the same time, I don't know that I absolutely agree with the premise of the question. Um, when the main pandemic breaks out in the novel, it's a serious lockdown that people are adhering to, which you know, was certainly not the case here. So maybe, maybe people did learn their lesson and maybe it would have been vastly worse you know, if they hadn't been doing that. Gaspari is a little bit hapless, though. I, I don't know. I don't know why I'm drawn to writing well-intentioned but slightly incompetent people, but I am. They're kind of appealing characters. I, I do like a complete lack of discretion. Right. It's, it's he's, certainly... He's terrible at his <laughs> yeah, job. He's terrible at his job. <laughs> Good intentions, but wow. So, you know, um, we don't have that much time, uh, so I'm, I'm sorry that I won't be able to get to all of your questions, which are excellent. Um, but I think this is kind of a continuation of what we've just been talking about. I, I don't know if you've seen this, but Lori Feathers wrote this really beautiful analysis of your life's work in LitHub, um, Literary Hub, a great um, site. And she wrote that the choices that your characters make often bring them and their situations beyond the point of repair. So I wanted to know that when you examine our society today, um, what do you find most in need of repair? And are there aspects that you find are beyond reparation? You know what I'm afraid of is what happens after a country loses consensual reality. We're like, you know, I look back to what politics were like not that long ago. Like, um, you know, okay, by way of example, in Station Eleven, in a scene that I wrote around 2012 or so, all these flights are diverted. Characters get off their airplane in this airport. They all stand below a television monitor and they believe everything the newscaster is saying. 
That was plausible in 2020. It is absolutely not plausible now. And, you know, it, I don't know what happens next once you get to a point in your politics where it's no longer about reasonable people disagreeing on policy. It's a matter of people fundamentally disagreeing on what is real. And like, that seems so dangerous to me. So like, yeah, that, that's something that I think about along those lines. I'm worried that that's beyond repair. And I hope it's not, but I don't know how you come back from that. Is that something that you're researching or you're finding? It's just something I think about you're, all the time. You're, 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 ta- you're, like, you're yeah, it when yeah. you see it, you're observing it. I'm observing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the way that people in different points of the political spectrum, it, it's something different than just disagreeing on what should happen next. It's disagreeing on what world they live in. And the, yeah. kind of a fundamental way. Remember when like West Coast, East Coast seemed like a thing? And that's I know, not, now, it's yeah. not. Uh, but one, one of our uh, audience members would like to know, why do you keep on coming back to the West Coast? And what is your connection to Vancouver Island? Uh, my entire family's there. It's a pretty strong connection. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I grew up there and my mother, my stepfather, and three of my four siblings live on Vancouver Island. So, yeah. Do you have a tour stop plan there? Uh, no, it's different in Canada with COVID. Um, I think the Canadian tour is just going to be the fall festivals in Canada, mm-hmm. which touring is so different there because the country is huge and there are so few people. <laughs> so um, often, the, often the Canadian book tour will just be the major festivals like Toronto, mm-hmm. Calgary, Vancouver. And I think that's what it'll look like. What's it like for them for, to be related to you in Canada I mean, you're, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you're, 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 you don't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we don't. Like, you're talk about it. <laughs> it's a hard question to segue to. Like, you know, it's true. What's it like to be my mom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, several of your books, Station Eleven, Glass Hotel, um, have themes of impermanence and how fleeting and flimsy the present moment always is. Sea of Tranquility plays with time, but in a different way. The present is fleeting, but also enduring through time travel. How did the strangeness of the pandemic make you think differently about how we experience time? What I like about that question is I feel like this is coming up in every conversation I have where, you know, the conversation with whoever I'm talking to will drift to the strangeness of the last two years. And somebody will say something about the oddness of the passage of time. There was such stasis in the pandemic and I don't know. In a weird way, it felt like it made time move faster. Where I was thinking about this month, where I've been on a book tour for the first time in years, and the month is going so slowly in such a wonderful way. Where you know I'm doing about three cities a week, and I've been doing that the last three weeks or so, and I can't believe it's still April somehow. Like it feels <laughs> like it's been months, and I mean that in a good way. It's just the more experiences you have the longer and more interesting life feels. And it makes me think of something the poet Kay Ryan said to me once. We were at a festival together and she had had some experience teaching poetry to women in prison. And there was this thing where a lot of women wouldn't take her class because they tried to make each day as similar as possible to the day before as a way to make time move faster. So there's something about that with the pandemic that, I'm just kind of wrapping my head around like it did feel like as awful as that time was like it moved in kind of an unnatural way that I can't quite articulate where it feels weird to say it flew by because every day was so stressful, but it somehow did. That was somehow not a long two years for me. Something about the immediacy of parenting throughout there is there was more joy there despite yeah. the fears. Yeah, there was experience. Um, so, what do we have to do to get an official Station Eleven graphic novel produced? Um, <laughs> Patrick and I are working on it. <laughs> I, I don't know when it'll come out, but yep, yeah, it's on the horizon. It's something we absolutely want to do. The situation nice. is um, Patrick Somerville and his colleagues on the Station Eleven show they pretty much had to write the graphic novel to make the show work. But there are gaps in it. It's not a completely tied up narrative. And we might want to add things to it that sort of speak to the other adaptations that we're doing together. So 
yeah, it's it's um it's going to happen at some point. We just don't know when. Fantastic. Um, so as our final question from the audience, um, oh, this is from Monica, a wonderful writer, Monica Single Jones. Welcome. Hi. Um, your works are gifts. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. It's really nice. <laughs> I love hearing writers talk about the craft and process of writing. Could you talk to us about your process? What tools do you use? What do you eat and drink? And where do you write? Um, I've tried to train myself to write anywhere, like just to get more work done. My favorite place to write is my home office. I have a standing desk that I really like. I have tools, pen, pen, scrap paper, and Microsoft Word. Basically, mm-hmm. I am. Um, I like to start off writing longhand, but I switch back and forth. So the first draft, I'll write, you know, five pages on pen and paper, and then I'm editing it as I type it into Word. I don't have an outline. I just kind of wing it, you know, I'll write a scene and see what happens. It develops into something longer and I'll, uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll try to figure out what it is. I kind of write the same way the book reads in a way where, you know, I'm jumping all over the place while I'm writing. So I'll write a couple of chapters from one character's perspective, have no idea what I'm doing next, but it's fine. I can just go write something from another point in the book and then figure out how it fits together later. As you might imagine, that makes for an incredibly messy first draft. (laughs) So for me, it usually takes, Sea of Tranquility was faster because I had the structure because it's a short book, but usually it takes me about a year to write a first draft. And I don't see that as the novel. I see that as the raw material in which I'll find the novel. So for me, anything that's good, like slightly coherent or stylish or whatever, all comes about through just round after round after round of revision. So for, for me, a, a big part, the most important part of writing a novel is revising that raw material. It gives me hope. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to close by sharing um, a passage from the book, which I was very struck by in which the author, Olive Llewellyn, is discussing post-apocalyptic fiction and in so doing introduces a way of thinking, which I think I would like for everyone to be considering. Um, And I know that you do too, because you wrote it. So here we go. Um, In her soliloquy, you wrote, as a species, we have a desire to believe that we're living at the climax of the story. It's a kind of narcissism. We want to believe that we're uniquely important, that we're living at the end of history, that now, after all of these millennia of false alarms, now is finally the worst that has ever been, that we have finally reached the end of the world. But all this raises an interesting question. What if it always is the end of the world? Because we might reasonably think of the end of the world as a continuous and never-ending process. I was so struck by that. Thank you. That was my Station Eleven lecture. I gave it to all of you. <laughs> you know, I delivered it for years. I refined it, refined it, refined yeah. it. And it was like, when the pandemic hit, I was like, I don't want to give lectures about pandemics ever again. <laughs> so I, right but, the book. But, it, but it was good material. So I was like, yeah. I'm going to give it to her. Uh, it was excellent. Thank you. Um, and, you know, if it is, you know, world ending time. I'm glad I got to meet you tonight. This is so fun. It was. I'm so grateful that you're here. And I want to thank uh, Seattle Public Library and Elliott Bay Book Company for hosting this conversation. Um, So thank you for coming. The Seattle Public Library presented this event with Emily St. John Mandel and Kristen Miaris-Young on April 18th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. Thank you for listening. Speakers Forum is going off the air at the end of this month. Tune in next week for our last episode.